Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise, and then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Baroness Catherine Ashton. She's a member of the British House of Lords, and from 2009 to 2014, she served as the EU's first ever High Representative Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, as well as the first Vice President of the European Commission. During that time, she played a major role in normalizing relations between Serbia and Kosovo in the Iran nuclear deal and in shaping Europe's response to both the Arab Spring and the Maidan revolution in Ukraine and Russia's subsequent assault on the country. She has written about all these experiences and more in a new book entitled And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy, which is out on the 2nd of February. Thank you very much for joining us. Very pleasurable to be here, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. So let's start then with the title of the book. Why did you call it And Then What? So when I was in office, I always tried to get officials who presented me with options or ideas for what we might do in our relationships with particular countries or regions, and especially during turbulent times and times of crises. I would always say we've got to be able to answer the question, and then what? If we do X or Y, and then what? What happens next? And the book title came about really because as I started to delve into the stories and think about what had happened, sometimes the reason that a crisis grew or a reason that I think we still find ourselves in difficulty in parts of the world is because we didn't really take the long view. We didn't think, well, and then what? What happens next? Sometimes we didn't know. Sometimes it didn't affect whether we should have done something, but we really needed to think about that. And I think that's still true. We have to consider 
and then what? Well, that sounds like a very sensible approach. And I think it's, as I say, very interesting to read about how you applied that in practice in the book. I'd also like to ask you particularly about that period in, shall we say, world history. So 2009 to 2014, while you were the EU's high representative. Looking back on that, in many ways, it was I think a bit of a transitional period between that post-Cold War era, that immediate post-Cold War era, and our current age of disorder. You know, it came after the financial crisis and just before the Brexit and Trump votes. And again, reading the book, it's, it's remarkable how many of the topics you were grappling with there have come to play great importance over the subsequent years and are still in the headlines. So just before we get into any of those individual topics, how do you look on that period in international history, in Europe's history, as a whole? I think you described it really well. It was a transitional period. We didn't know it was because when you're in the middle of a transition, you don't know that's what it is. What we saw was a huge number of events and crises bubbling up to the surface, becoming extremely challenging and needing a response. So for me, what was really interesting was Europe was embarking on this new adventure, if you like, which was to create a foreign policy service that was European. And one of the questions I would ask is, how would you, how do you know it's European as opposed to French, German, British, whatever? And doing so against a backdrop of the financial crisis, which had shaken economies and economics and politics, of course, are so well connected, but also against a backdrop that the world was changing and changing rapidly. And that included everything from the role of social media in Egypt and getting young people engaged and moving, the fact that you had this capacity to communicate, 24-hour media and its response, that events became real extraordinarily quickly within seconds, and that you were looking at a world where the kind of the old ways of thinking about events needed to be rethought. And that was partly about looking at the kind of toolbox of diplomacy and saying, well, what have we got? What can we use? How do we deal with crises? But as importantly, and I suggest even more importantly as time goes on, looking at how to prevent problems from turning into crises. On that point, let's come on to Ukraine, which I think is the topic that you grappled with during that time that is obviously most on people's minds now. And it's interesting to, to read your descriptions of what it was like to visit the Maidan in, 20, in early 2014 and the great hopes that Ukrainians, particularly young Ukrainians, had for a European future for their country. Obviously, there was, there was a lot of, sort of frenetic diplomatic activity during that year. Looking back, do you think that the EU applied the right lessons of that time and did everything it could to put Ukraine in, in a position to stand up for itself and defend its European aspirations? The negotiations with Ukraine have been going on for seven years. The association agreement between Europe and Ukraine, that was a trade plus, essentially. It would give a stronger economic basis for Ukraine's relationship with Europe, but it would also help it to reform, to tackle corruption and so on, because it was part of an institutional ongoing kind of approach as well. And it would give Ukraine some resources to be able to do that. So it was an important agreement. And over the seven years... The Commission particularly had been working very closely with the leadership in Ukraine. And the then President Yanukovych had stood on a platform for re-election of saying, we are going to do this agreement. So there's a lot of enthusiasm across Ukraine to do this. Where I think we were not as adept was what I called in the book, lifting up the rug and looking at the dust underneath, looking deeper at the politics of what was happening, and especially in the context 
of Ukraine's relationship with Russia. We saw a lot of President Putin during that time. We saw a lot of Russia during that time, not least because I was negotiating with the Russians as my colleagues in the Iran talks all the way through, and that was an inordinate amount of time. But we somehow had not, I think, understood the depth of feeling that existed in the Kremlin about the direction of travel that Ukraine was taking. And that goes back to the promises of potential NATO membership engagement. And I think one of the lessons for the future is looking at the consequences of what we offer and also looking at the offer itself, because with Ukraine, we were not offering EU membership then. NATO was not formally offering membership then. It was a sort of slightly nebulous relationship that could potentially turn into something bigger in the future. And there were many who believed passionately Ukraine belonged in NATO and in the EU. But there were many also who felt that maybe this was not quite the formal relationship we'd want to have in the future for all sorts of reasons. Big lesson is be clear about what it is you're trying to do. Be clear about how prepared you are to stick with it and to make sure that it's possible. And recognize the importance of the way that people view you. Tiny example that is so important, I think, isn't in the book, is about Afghanistan. When I met women in Afghanistan, their expectation was that we were going to continue to support them. When I met people who guarded our embassies, their expectation was we would continue to help them if things turned in a negative direction. So the expectations people have on you are also incredibly important, even if that's not what you intended at the time. And I think those lessons are really important in any relationships that now go on between Europe, between America, between the West, if you like, and countries with aspirations to be part of it, or at least to be closer to it. Indeed. Looking at how the EU has responded to events since the 24th of February last year, how do you rate its response? What, how, would you, how do you see the role that it's played? Because on the one hand, you have this strong sense that the US has really led, particularly in terms of military support for Ukraine. But on the other, there is, I think, I mean, I'm in Berlin, I think in Brussels as well, there's a bit of a sense of Europe starting to assume a more geopolitical character or the EU starting to assume that character. What, where do you come down on that spectrum of views? I think there was probably quite a lot of surprise in the Kremlin that Europe stood as united as it did. And it wasn't just the EU, of course, the British and others were as determined and played a strong role in helping to support Ukraine and continue to do so. But I think the unity of approach was something that we couldn't have taken for granted would happen because there are such different relationships with Ukraine and Russia across Europe, but which when it happened made a lot more sense of the value of having this big economic bloc that also has the capacity to use largely soft power to be able to promote its values and to support those who also believe in the values that we hold dear. It was always going to be the case that the US was going to lead militarily because in terms of where the military strength lies, it lies across the Atlantic. And this goes to the heart of a question that's never been resolved in Europe as to whether the primary relationship for European nations should be and remain NATO, whether there is a role to build up more the institutions like the European Defence Agency in support of that, 
or whether there is a such a more strategic role militarily for Europe to collaborate in a more effective way than it currently does. And what does that look like? And those are sort of, I remember being engaged in and discussing with the Secretary General of NATO on a regular basis is how do we ensure that we enhance the relationship between us while not trying to take away from what is capable of being done by one but not the other. And that's also true, by the way, for the EU. Sometimes an EU flag is better than a NATO flag in the context of what that means. Yeah. Do you see the union going down the road towards being more of a hard power? Because we've seen in the last months the EU, okay, it's not providing direct military equipment to Ukraine, but it is financing member states to do that. As you say, there's there's these discussions about EU rapid reaction force, the European Defence Fund. Is that the direction of travel, do you think? I've always seen the European direction of travel as much more about supporting European defence industries, for example. Doing things as we did in my time, like helicopter training for campaigns, or I recall post-Libya work that we were involved in mid-air refuelling support, because a lot of countries in the EU did not have mid-air refuelling requirements, basically. They'd never needed to think about that. And the classic example of a round nozzle in a square hole and how you make sure that if you're going to engage in sorties far from home, that you have the capacity to have mediation. It's a simple thing. So there were lots of examples where training and expertise could be done on a European level that would then enhance operational levels. I'm not sure about Europe trying to turn itself into a military power. I never thought that would be the direction of travel in the end. doesn't mean they don't collaborate on things, but it's quite different to thinking of it as a kind of European NATO. I think NATO is NATO. Mm. What I did notice, I attended foreign and defence ministers' meetings of NATO, as well as chairing foreign and defence ministers' meetings in the EU. People behave differently when they're sitting in a military alliance, thinking militarily, than when they're sitting in an alliance that's based on economics and politics. And you see that difference of what are we here for? And I think to recognise those differences are quite important in terms of how countries feel. And when you use one is not necessarily when you use the other. And if you mix them all into one, I wonder whether that makes things less effective at times. I'm not sure. It won't be for me to decide all these things. But there are real interesting questions about how far it's about collaboration and cooperation and economies of scale and how far it's about moving into that space. And a sort of institutional mentality. That's interesting. So turning from Ukraine to another topic you talk about in the book, and that is very current, I'd like to discuss Iran at the moment. And you were there at the table as the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA was being negotiated. And obviously, that was successful, but not least thanks to a certain president in the US, it has suffered since. And it was reported recently that Joe Biden had described the deal as dead. Would you go that far or do you think there there is still hopes of reviving it? I think when the president was describing it as dead, I think where he was looking at the form that we had it, could you simply resurrect it and put it back in place? And the answer to that is probably no or with enormous difficulty. Talking with the negotiators, as I've done from time to time, there is a need to always, with any deal, look at how far things have changed and things have moved. Sanctions are different. So from the Iranian perspective, if they're looking at sanctions relief, it will be a different 
kind of sanctions relief. Equally, their program has moved on and they have started to build new facilities, which will have to be taken into account. You can't just stay where you were. It is an enormous tragedy that JCPOA was ripped up by a US president, not least because when I, I've been was talking to them, the hope of putting something that was bigger and better in its place was best done by adding rather than by throwing everything away and trying to start again. But we have a different kind of regime in Iran. We have a different president. We have different negotiators. We're much more back to the days when I began the Iran negotiations as chair and lead on them in the days of the Ahmadinejad regime, where the current chief negotiator for Iran was then the judge of deputy negotiator. And these are intelligent, interesting people who are capable of doing a deal, but there was no sign they wanted to, particularly. And I think we're back to the point where the expectation that we might have of getting an agreement is something that's very difficult to imagine. I should also add that, of course, there is a concern that if the US can rip it up uh, afterwards, then why wouldn't it rip it up again if we get a president who doesn't like it? And the problem for the agreement, just so that everybody understands it, is that the big thing that Iran got from the deal in terms of selling it to its own population was a stronger economy. Companies don't invest, banks don't do business. If they think two years later, it's all going to get pulled up again. So it's incredibly difficult to see how you're going to do an agreement that is going to have longevity and strength in those circumstances. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's amazing, both on that and on Ukraine, how much seems to depend on the outcome of the 2024 US presidential election and how much both partners to the US and rivals are factoring in the possibility of another Trump presidency or something similar. It is amazing how that specter is already shaping real-life negotiations and military judgments around the world. It is. Way back in when I was in office, if you remember, President Obama did his famous segment about the pivot. Mm. And that caused a lot of doom and gloom around in European capitals. Somehow that meant that the emphasis on supporting Europe would be gone. I saw it slightly differently in that it was an opportunity for Europe to also build up its capacity to tackle issues, not least in its own backyard, that were of enormous importance to it um, and needed to be resolved. And you couldn't always just look across the Atlantic and say, please, America, can we follow you in? It also addressed a problem that Europe was regarded as a payer, not a player, I think, in the context, particularly in the Middle East, where we were seen to be the economic powerhouse that would help support resolution to problems, but not actually in the driving seat in terms of the politics of doing that. And so, bizarrely, the concern about what could happen across the Atlantic could and should allow Europe, and Europe in its broadest sense, to become more effective, mm. and, or at least to, to contemplate how to be more effective in resolving problems that essentially are problems that affect Europe much more than they affect the US anyway. I'd like to move on to another topic on in Europe's, I guess you might call it Europe's near abroad or the EU's near abroad, and that's the tensions over Serbia and Kosovo at the moment. Another area that you dealt with in your time as a high rep that is now, unfortunately, back in the news. Clearly, the situation there is fairly febrile. Do you think that relations can be stabilised between Kosovo and Serbia? And more, more generally, do you think that the incentive of EU membership, which seems to be talked about increasingly in, in, in some of these European capitals, including the one I'm in now, do you think that can help, that can actually work as the incentive needed to settle relations in the West Balkans and bring them into the European fold in the long term? So it's much easier for leaders to, when they get into power, which is often a difficult journey, to do nothing, to just let things be. It's much, much harder for them to be brave. And the point about the Serbia-Kosovo 
first agreement, which is what we called it, it was never, it's not meant to be the last one by any means, was it required bravery on both sides. Bravery that could result in them losing power because certainly for Kosovo, the idea of doing any kind of agreement with the great enemy of Serbia is very difficult. And for many people in Serbia, Kosovo is a part of Serbia. That's how they see it. So it's an extraordinarily difficult and challenging thing for leadership. And we were able to pull together good agreements that continued to be relatively effective, but by no means resolved the problem at the heart of it. And the point about EU membership is that it is the pull, the draw, that makes people willing to both take the kind of leadership risks, but also to be able to sell what they're doing to their own population. You have to feel that by giving up or by being prepared to make an agreement with your enemy, that you can say to your people, but look, we get this. Look, this is really important. And so the ambition of what we were doing was always that in the end, the pull of the lead of the leadership being able to bring people into the idea of being part of the EU made borders less important, made the need for the region to develop its own economic and political life together much more of an incentive. And for many people in the Western Balkans, the project of the EU was much more about economic and peace and security, that the way to tackle in the end these underlying or difficult problems that still create for families and individuals deep despair. There are people who've never been found. There are lots of unanswered questions and there are deep residual difficulties and problems that need to be ultimately through generations resolved. And doing this for the next generations to come of giving them a better future was what it was all meant to be about. So the pull is still there. The problem is that I think there's a growing concern in the region that the EU doesn't quite mean it. That when North Macedonia changed its name, which was huge, I was involved in I was just thinking about that as you were talking about about an act of bravery to change, to transform your, what the way you're framing your whole country's history and identity in the interest of joining the EU only to find that it didn't have the magical sex that it was supposed to. And it's, I can easily understand why in Skopje or for similar reasons, maybe in Tirana, you might be feeling a bit demoralized. Absolutely. No, completely right. It was enormous that, from what, but we shouldn't underestimate. It was absolutely enormous to do that and took real bravery. And the deal was that was going to then move them into the next stage of actually getting into the EU, and it didn't. And the shock went right across the region. I'm still, it won't surprise you, once you work with the Balkans, you never give up. So I'm always still now involved in all of these questions, particularly in Serbia and Kosovo. And it was a real problem. And it gave, of course, those who see a different kind of future, not least a future that is more pro-Russian, a future that would be very different, an opportunity to say, see, we told you, we told you, this is what would happen. And the see, we told you, it's an example, by the way, I recall in the Iran negotiations, that the hardliners in Iran were always telling the negotiating team, don't trust the Americans, they will withdraw from this deal. And the see we told you is something that we also have to guard against, that if we sign up to something, we sign up to it. And it goes back to the, and then what, and what are the consequences 
of what we do way back to Ukraine. What is it we're offering? How serious are we about the offer? And although you can't, you can't predict where individual countries and governments were going to be, the 27 countries of the EU, there are always changes in government. I used to joke when I chaired a foreign affairs council, there was always an election somewhere because in 27 countries, there's always one going on and you would have a change of government and ideas. So you can't predict where it would be. But we should not underestimate, again, how important what we say and do is to mm. those people who are looking to us as Europeans, in the broadest sense of European, to be the way forward and to be how they might achieve what they want. Not be our own worst enemy on some of these topics, it seems. Thinking about this importance of lowering the salience of borders in contested uh, regions. It's obviously, as a Brit, hard not to think of Northern Ireland and Brexit and so forth. Now, I don't want to get into Northern Ireland or the protocol now, but I would like to hear your views on what Brexit has meant for Britain's diplomatic role and its overall place within Europe, because many of those of us Remainers who really see the the see what Britain's lost by not sitting at the table in the EU anymore. We have our arguments. On the other hand, there are also Brexit supporters who say Britain has played a relatively prominent role in responding to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's been quite a sort of solid supporter to Zelensky and the government there. So what's your, sort of where do you come down on that one? How much has Brexit affected Britain's influence? Following on from that, what can the country do to mitigate that loss of influence to the extent that you think that there has been one? There's no doubt that Britain is regarded in Ukraine as having been the leader in a European context and very close on the heels of the US in terms of support. In a way, it's the exception that proves the rule because the way that Britain is regarded diplomatically in most of the world is we're not, they're not quite sure what we want to do now. There's a sense that for many people who voted Brexit, that they still saw Britain as an outward-facing trading nation. There were others who saw Britain as needing to move away from that kind of approach. It's the classic split in the Conservative Party, in a sense, between as long as you can reconcile the outward-facing trade, forward-leading part of the Conservative Party and the inward-facing part of the Conservative Party that is more concerned about issues like immigration and so on. If you can reconcile those two, you have a very strong Conservative Party. When they split, it's very challenging, and you see that now. But for the, for the context of the European Union, I was the first high representative. It wasn't a complete shock that it was a Brit. It was a complete shock that it was me. I know that. But it was not a complete shock that it was a Brit because British foreign policy and diplomacy is so highly regarded in the world. And the ability of the Brits to be able to manage 27 other countries in conference to be able to sort of design and develop a foreign policy approach and indeed a service from nothing was where Europeans sort of thought might be a good thing. We weren't the only country that could do it by any means, but there was a kind of assumption that, that sort of ought to be our thing. So outside, what you find is that people don't really know what it is we want to do and how we're going to approach foreign policy in general. The bridge between the US and Europe is gone. That's no longer being provided. It's much more likely to be rooted in Berlin or Paris or elsewhere. I think from countries that we've dealt with very closely, not least the US, I get lots of questions about what's going to be the priority. And this sort of concept of global Britain, which nobody understands, because nobody's worked out what it means, sounds good, but I've no idea what it means. It's either got to be that we take a kind of Norwegian style and say, right, we're going to be the place where 
X happens, we're going to have a focus on this particular aspect of foreign policy, which is what they do. But we're a much bigger country. So do we then say, we're not going to do that, we're going to have an approach that is global. But unless you're able to funnel and channel what you think through some mechanism that kind of amplifies it, then it's a bit wasted. So what we've lost above everything is that we can take the issues that mattered most to Britain and make sure that 27 other countries would back us on that, would support us on that, that e-resources would go into that. And I saw that happen time and time again through David Miliband, through William Hague and others who really did push what Britain's agenda was in a very positive way and were successful in achieving that. We're able to do things in concert with others that they could not have achieved on their own. We've lost that and Europe's lost that too. And it's a loss in both directions. My ambition is that as we go forward, somebody comes up with a much stronger and clearer idea of how we're going to re-enter that debate. I'd like to finish with a question that actually brings together a lot of the different topics we've talked about, and you've already alluded to it, I think, in some of your answers. But to put it to you straightly, what would be your plan or your proposal for how to make Europe ready for a world where the US has really turned to the Pacific? Because we're still seeing quite strong American commitment under Joe Biden to for example, the situation in Ukraine. But it's quite clear that even in the Democrats, there is a sense that the long-term focus needs to be towards the Pacific, towards the contest with China, building alliances there. And that's obviously without even going into what a new Donald Trump presidency would mean. So what would your advice be to, to the EU and indeed to Britain, to that broader Europe in preparing itself for that world? If you helicopter over Europe, that you start to see all of the issues that are European in the sense that they impinge upon Europe's ability to be able to develop politically, economically, and so on. So whether it's relationships with Turkey, whether it's the Western Balkans, whether it's what's going on in the Southern Mediterranean, whether it's the Arctic, there are clear and obvious areas where Europe needs to develop the strength of its position So that would be the first thing is let's do some helicopter work. Let's look at what's actually going on. The second then is to look at the strengths that Europe has. This enormous economic powerhouse is hardly ever recognised for the economic powerhouse that it is inside, never mind outside. It has huge economic clout. It has the capacity through trade and through economic arrangements to make substantial differences to the lives of people in countries that border the European Union and Europe generally. So it has the capacity, for example, in the Western Balkans to look at economically supporting those economies more effectively. It also has the issues of mobility. Now, mobility is always tricky because when you think about mobility, you think about immigration, we think about the tragedies of what's going on in terms of people being prepared to risk their lives on, in, on seaworthy vessels to try and get somewhere. But You have to look at the underpinning, underlying reasons why that's going on. And there are issues of people coming because of conflict and repression, and there are issues of people coming because of economics. But there is legitimate mobility. There are legitimate opportunities that need to be enhanced from people that we're going to need in the future across Europe. That needs to be thought about in a much more sort of sensible and long-term way. 
And then, of course, there's the capacity to use resources like money to be able to enhance the capacity of countries to develop. And that can be everything from investment, the EIB, the European Investment Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development, all kinds of ways in which people can look at the problem. So it's about deciding where we think the issues of the future are going to lie and recognising the challenges of the ones that exist already and trying to see how far we're able to use the tools that we're good at to be able to enhance the chances of us being able to have a peaceful and secure Europe in the context of the broader area that we live on. And that, of course, takes us to Ukraine because there are many challenges with Ukraine currently, the tragedy that is happening to the people of Ukraine. But there are going to be challenges in the future when this war is done in rebuilding Ukraine and supporting Ukraine. The potential, its enormous potential in technology where they have been extremely uh, good and able in terms of the breadbasket that is Ukraine. There are lots of ways in which we're going to have to enhance the capacity of Ukraine to be able to recover, not just through grants and the sort of Marshall Plan ideas that are being talked about, but actually in the longer term too. And that takes you right back to the beginning of the Ukraine crisis with the association of people. So it's about Europe standing together and recognising that it, it has the capacity and the responsibility really to try and stop the problems that we've talked about, especially in the neighbourhood, from becoming the crises that we've seen so often overtake us. Indeed. I think it's it's a... Uh, an optimistic note on which to end, to recognise that Europe does have agency in all of these areas and can shape its own neighbourhood and environment. So I think it's a good point to, to end on. I'd like to thank you for a very wide-ranging discussion in time and place, but I think a lot of food for thought there. So thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Jeremy. So listeners, that was Baroness Catherine Ashton. Her book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy is out on February the 2nd. I've been Jeremy Cliff, and this has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, why not tell a friend, rate us, and leave a nice review. Our producer has been May Robson. Thanks very much for listening, and until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.